John chapter 4 tells a story of Jesus meeting a woman at the well, and it begins with these words. Jesus stopped at Sychar. Now, Sychar is a real place at a real time with a real history, and it's helpful if we understand some things about Sychar. Everybody knows where Jerusalem is on the map, and this is sometime around the year 30 CE, 2,000 years ago. Sychar is to the north, right about here where the green star is. Now, if you went and visited Sychar today, you would notice that it is in the shadow of a mountain, but not just any mountain. The mountain would be Mount Gerizim. Let me hear you say Mount Gerizim this morning. So if you can imagine, I'm not 100% sure which one's Sychar in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, but we can just assume that it's a place like this, where it's looking up at this mountain that's right next to it. We read these words about the story, Jesus, weary from the journey, came and sat by the well, And when a Samaritan woman, now, she is nameless in the text, but church tradition has given her a name. The name is Fotini. Let me hear you say Fotini this morning. So when a Samaritan woman, Fotini, came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, this is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal, you have to go back a thousand years before Jesus said, give me a drink, to understand why it's a big deal all the way back to the year 970 BCE. During this era, there was a man named Solomon on the throne, and he led Israel, a united nation at that point, to unprecedented economic wealth and prosperity in Israel's history. They had so much money that he decided to build the grandest temple in all of the world, which by our standards today might not look so grand. It looked something like this is the best architectural rendering I've seen of it. Now, he built this temple on what some parts of the Bible refer to as Mount Zion, other parts of the Bible call Mount Moriah, which is in Jerusalem. We're going to stick with Mount Moriah for the rest of this sermon. Now, after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam took the throne, and he was so bad at being king that within a matter of days, he had a civil war on his hand. The nation split into two with Judah, the blue star, to the south, and Israel, the green star, to the north. The capital of Judah was the city Jerusalem. The capital of Israel, the the place where Rehoboam was not reigning, the capital up there was Samaria. Now, what's important to understand is these nations split apart, which means that while they are separate nations, they have a common ancestry and a common history between them, even though they are entirely different nations. Now, about 400 years later, a lot has changed. There's been all sorts of empires that have come in and leveled temples or whatever. Both uh, this temple on, that Solomon built has been leveled by the Babylonians, and it's around 520 that the Israelites, or the people of Judah at that point, begin to rebuild the temple on Mount Moriah. This is known as the second temple period in Jewish history. Now, not too far to the north, in Samaria, the Samaritans were building their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And because they have common ancestry and common history, there is some debate as to what actually happened on these mountains. The people of Jerusalem say, oh, Abraham tried to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah. And the Samaritans are like, oh, no, no, that story happened on Mount Gerizim. And so there's some debate as to what, where God actually had these stories unfold. This debate raged on for about 400 years until the debate became violent. 
And people in Jerusalem in the year 110 marched on Samaria and they destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim as a way to say, no, we will not tolerate this heresy. Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac here on Mount Moriah. Like that's where it actually happened. We can't tolerate it. Now, about 100 years after this, the temple on Mount Moriah is deteriorating. So a man named Herod rises to the throne. He becomes the king of the place known as Judea, and he puts all kinds of funding into rebuilding the temple at Mount Moriah, and it looks like this. Now, I believe that this piece of architecture would take your breath away even to this day because of how beautiful the courtyard is and how it's laid out. I think that you would have a posture of reverence walking into this. Meanwhile, on Mount Gerizim, while this is getting rebuilt and refurbished and turned to an opulent temple and palace, Mount Gerizim looks like this. And the people in Samaria know this, that their temple has not been rebuilt by the person who is overseeing them. Meanwhile, the people down south are getting a temple rebuilt, and it's causing some friction. In other words, when this story with Jesus and the Samaritan woman Fotini unfolds, things are tense between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because after all, it was the people from Jerusalem who leveled Mount Gerizim. So Jesus says, can you give me some water to this woman who is Samaritan, Fotini? And you can imagine that instantly things become tense, right? Tense between them. And Fotini replies, she just names it right away. She's like, uh, you're a Jew. How can you ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? How dare you? Remember when your people came up here and leveled our temple? It's not too long ago. And even John seems to second what Fotini is saying. He writes, since Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans, things are tense. And as the conversation unfolds, they begin talking about water and theology and who God is. And all of a sudden, Fotini says, surely you don't pretend to be greater than our ancestors, Leah and Rachel and Jacob. Now, what's interesting is she instantly goes to the common ancestry and the common heritage between them. And she says, our ancestors, and goes on to say, who gave us this well and drank from it with their descendants and flocks. So Fotini is already living with this idea that there is some connection between her and this Jewish man, even though her society has told her that they are enemies. Jesus goes on to say, but those who drink the water I give them will never be thirsty, Fotini. And she responds by saying, you know what? I've been tired of coming to this well. It's a chore. Give me this water, Jesus, so that I won't grow thirsty and have to keep coming all the way here to draw water. Now, Jesus says, sure, I'll give you the water, but why don't you call your husband first and then come back here? And as you heard in the story just a few moments ago, things got tense there. And the reason why is because Fotini says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, I can't imagine the like, reaction he has on his face or the look he has on his face as he says this. He says, you're right. Oh, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're living with now is not your husband. Tense, my friends. So tense, in fact, we say it's bordering on cringe. <laughs> like, whew. And Fotini, to her credit, takes this in stride. I would have been like, I'm out. I have nothing to do with this man anymore. I would have left. But she says, oh, I can see you're a prophet. You seem to know a lot about me. And so she decides to go to the most pressing theological question that has been the biggest source of debate between the Samaritans and the Jews for over 400 years. She says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, 
Mount Gerizim. But you people claim that Jerusalem is the place where God ought to be worshipped on Mount Moriah. Which is it, Jesus? I want to hear your answer. What does Jesus do? He looks at her and he says, the hour is coming, Fotina, when you'll worship Abba God neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. In other words, this prophet says, we both know, Fotini, that you cannot contain God in a building. That God doesn't live on one mountain. God lives everywhere. And the idea that God is here or here and nothing else is going to go away very soon. Now, Fotini welcomes this. She says, I know that the Messiah, the anointed one, is coming and will tell us everything. She kind of leaves it out there to see if Jesus will finish the sentence for her, and he does. He says, I who speak to you am the Messiah. And Fotini believes him like that. So much so that she just takes her jar of water, she leaves it there, and then she goes straight back into the town of Sychar. And she goes into the town And she starts to talk to the people of Sychar. She said to the people of Sychar, come and see someone who told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Now, for the majority of my life, I pictured Fotini going back into Sychar and having coffee with her friends, right? Like one at a time, she would sit down and say, like, let me tell you about this guy I met at the well. He knew everything about me. It was remarkable. And then he started talking about transcending religion. It was beautiful. But this story takes place in the time of one day. And when we read how many people she spoke to, it says at that, everyone set out from the town to meet Jesus. Well, can you have coffee with everyone in the town in the morning? No. So how do you get the word out to lots of people and make sure lots of people are hearing you as you talk about Jesus? You don't look like this. You look like this, right? You stand up and you begin talking and people begin to listen. And we read in the next verse, she said to the people of Sychar, this is the verse we read just a moment ago. It's better if we change that word to, you know, she testified to the people of Sychar. She proclaimed to the people of Sychar. My brothers and sisters and siblings, she preached to the people of Sychar. She stood up and everyone heard her. And she said in front of all of them, come and see someone who told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And in true paradox fashion, she ends her sermon with a question and then sits down. (laughs) And she says all of these things and people hear her and we read at that, everyone, everyone set out from the town to meet Jesus. Now I've been preaching in Redlands for a while. I've never had the whole town agree with me on something. And yet she gets Sychar to say, hey, let's go check this guy out. Let's go see what she's saying. Every last person in Sychar goes to see who this Jesus fellow is. Now we read a couple of verses there about what the disciples do. Jesus talks to the disciples a little bit, but then the story picks up a few verses later. And we read, the narrator writes, many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus on the strength of Fotini's testimony, that he, quote, told me everything I ever did. The result was that when these Samaritans came to Jesus, they begged him to stay with them a while. So Jesus stayed there two more days, and through his own spoken word, many more came to faith. And the last verse in this story, I find to be deeply moving. 
because the people of the town told Fotini, no longer does our faith depend on your story. We've heard it for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. My friends, this right here is the highest compliment you can pay a preacher. This is the top. When you can say, hey, I liked your sermon so much, it helped me see God in my own life. Thanks. Now, there's a mean way to say this, which is, I don't need you anymore. There are nicer ways to say that. But there is nothing better than preachers have in their mind than this, that we equip you, that we help you see how God is active, not one week out of your li- one hour during the week out of your life, but during all 168 hours that you see God in your own story, that you see God move through your own life. That's what all of us preachers are trying to do. And here we have an example of exactly what the highest level of preaching looks like, where you point beyond yourself to the life of Jesus. People go find Jesus and they say, my relationship with Jesus, my understanding of God doesn't depend on you anymore. I can now see God for myself. And when you consider that this is the result of the entire town of Sychar, a question we have to ask is, is Fotini the greatest preacher of the New Testament? Is she number one? Now, I don't say this lightly. I'd rather have some context to this, so I'd rather put her up against the great preachers of the New Testament and see if she's number one. We'll begin with the Son of God to really start the competition off fairly here. Jesus, in Matthew 5, delivers a powerhouse of a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, just To this day, one of the most relevant sermons, most powerful sermons that's ever been preached in human history. But also, in John 6, two chapters after the story with Fotini, we read about a sermon he preached where a lot of people walked away saying, "Mm, this is too tough to follow you. And they turned away from following Jesus because of his words. So while he did have the Sermon on the Mount, there was another sermon where he misunderstood his audience a little bit. In Acts chapter 2, we come across the story of Peter, who is preaching in the city of Jerusalem. Shortly after Pentecost, he begins to tell people about the risen Messiah. And we read in the scriptures that he converted 3,000 people with one sermon to follow God. 3,000 people. That's pretty impressive. But my question is, did their relationship on God or understanding of God depend on Peter? Or was he able to point beyond himself? One of my favorite preachers in the New Testament is a man named Paul. There's a sermon he gives in Acts 17 that is just mind-blowing theology. He did it in the shadow of the Acropolis in Athens, and he talked about how God is not a God who can be contained by human hands and human minds, and God transcends all names that humans have given to God throughout history. And while I love it and it speaks to my soul, Acts 17 says the people listening scoffed. They didn't care. They turned their back on him, and he had to leave Athens because no, none of his sermons got any traction. In the book of Acts, there's a man named Apollos, who is told, we are told is a great orator, a great preacher, a man who stood up and could just speak poetry. But if you look at what happens to Apollos, shortly after he preaches in Corinth, there is a rivalry that goes on between the people who heard Paul speak and the people who heard Apollos speak in Corinth. So much so that they begin telling each other, like, I belong to Apollos, and I belong to Paul. We know about this because in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to them and says, you don't belong to me. 
You don't belong to Apollos. You belong to Jesus Christ. You've missed the point. So Apollos may be a gifted orator, but the people were bonded to him, not to the God he was pointing beyond himself. And the other great preacher, we don't have a sermon from her, but we do know that she had to be very gifted when it comes to words because she is the one from all four Gospels who found the empty tomb of Jesus. She is Mary Magdalene. And while we don't know if she preached a sermon, what we do know is that she went and she was the first person to convince the disciples of Jesus that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. That takes some nice work from crafting words and putting a sermon together. It may have been a sermon. It may have been a conversation. But we should definitely include Mary Magdalene anytime we talk about great orators in the New Testament history. So when it comes to Fotini, I want to tell you that I place her way near the top. But I think that what we can all agree on is that Fotini is comfortably in the top five preachers in the New Testament. And if Fotini was alive today... I have no doubt she would be an excellent pastor, to which someone might stand up with their Bible open to 1 Timothy and say, hold up, hold up, Craig, we got to talk about this. I have sat with you through Leviticus, through Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I've got to stop you right here, because 1 Timothy has a problem with this. And I know exactly where they'd be going. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where the author writes, Bishops must be irreproachable, married only once, even-tempered, self-controlled, modest and hospitable. They should be good teachers. Ten verses later, the author writes about deacons who must have only been married once and must be good, managers of their children and their households. And when you look at Fotini, she's on her fifth divorce. She's going toward her sixth and someone would object and say, what about 1 Timothy 3? She can't be a pastor. She's not fit for church leadership. Look at her divorce history. But my friends, it doesn't stop with divorce. Because if I were about to respond to this, they would say, well, 1 Timothy has some other things to say about Fotini. They would turn to chapter 2, verse 12, which says, women are to be quiet and completely submissive during religious instruction. I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must remain silent. After all, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And we look at this story, and before we can even object, they say, you know what? Her gender disqualifies her from being a pastor. But it doesn't stop with gender, they would say, and they would keep going. They would go back to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and say, bishops shouldn't be new converts, lest they become conceited and thus incur the punishment once meted out to the devil. And so you have all of these different rules that say Fotini can't be a pastor. She can't be an orator. She can't be a preacher. And what you realize is that with 1 Timothy, Fotini, one of the great preachers in the New Testament, is disqualified from being a preacher even though she's one of the great preachers in the New Testament. Imagine coming up with a list for what a basketball player is and is not. And that list disqualifies LeBron James. You might want to change your list, right? And when you look at this story, Jesus goes to this woman and begins talking to her. And he doesn't just talk to her. He says he knows her already. He knows about her history. He knows about where she's come from. And when Jesus calls her and asks her to go tell the town about him, we have to be honest about some things here. Jesus was fully aware of her divorces. 
He didn't like say, oh, you, wait, you're divorced? Oh, sorry, I got to move on. Jesus was aware of her gender. No questions there. Jesus is aware of her queer sexuality and the fact that she was in a relationship that didn't fit in with societal norms during the time. Jesus was aware of her culture and where she came from, and he knew the stories they told one another. And Jesus was aware of her religion. And my friends, Jesus still called Fotini to preach. Jesus still called Fotini to pastor. He said, you will go out into this world and tell people about me. And he didn't bat an eye when he knew about the divorces and the different living arrangements and also her gender and a new convert and all of those things. In other words, this story says basically the opposite of 1 Timothy. This is a biblical contradiction. And if you don't know me yet, I love biblical contradictions. Because these verses are the exact opposite of what happens in this story in John 4. My friends, whenever you start to read verses from different books of the Bible, particularly the letters in the New Testament, you should always stop and ask yourself, okay, I know what the verses say, but what is the thesis statement of this book? So when we go to 1 Timothy, we should ask ourselves, what is the thesis statement of 1 Timothy? Like, what's the singular point that this is all going toward when he discriminates against women, when he tells us that new converts can't be preachers, when he tells us that, you know, if you want to serve in church leadership, you should only be married once. What is his overarching point? And it's found in the second to last verse in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 verse 20 reads, Dear Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Now, my friends, if you don't know much about 1 Timothy, I would love to talk to you about this book. Because in 1 Timothy... There is this sense that there are people in power and people who are not in power in the church. And the thesis statement is written to somebody in power saying, make sure you protect the power you have in church. Don't budge an inch. And if that's the thesis statement, of course 1 Timothy is going to say to this woman, hey, we don't want anything new. We want to keep it just men, men who are only married once, men who have been part of the religion for a long time because we're guarding what's been entrusted to us. Now, if you're saying, that doesn't sound like the gospel to me, I would say you're absolutely right. You want to know what the gospel is? This story. And 1 Timothy should never overrule the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will tell you that 1 Timothy is the most authoritative book in the New Testament. And any time a church leader comes quoting 1 Timothy, telling you about how they're in charge, you should be aware of them. You should pay attention to them because they are probably advancing their own causes with Scripture. And 1 Timothy was written a hundred years after the life of Christ, and I believe that it was written to undo this story. Now, this may be hard to hear because you say, like, well, if I can't trust 1 Timothy, can I trust any of the Bible? To which I would say, of course you can. The, the Bible is not flat. The gospel is the most important thing that we have as Christians. And it's okay for us to prioritize some books over the other. Martin Luther did it back in the Reformation, so we're well within the tradition of Protestant Christianity of doing this, right? And you may say, but what's the point of 1 Timothy? Like, I feel like we need it, to which I would say, my friend, we are not Biblearians. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. We don't follow a book. We follow the Christ who went to a town called Sychar and said, you know who I need? Fotini. 
She's been disqualified by everybody around her, but this is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The least qualified is the most qualified. The first is last, and the last is first. Now, let's be transparent with one another, shall we? Let's imagine that you got invited to Paradox for the first time, and somebody asked you, tell me a little bit about the preacher who's there. And you say, to, you say to them, like, oh, you know, he's a good guy, he's nice, he tells some funny stories, he's got some pictures, it's great. And then your friend says, well, tell me a little bit about his personal life. And in this hypothetical story, you say, well, he's been divorced five times and he's living with his girlfriend, but it's totally fine, it's totally fine, you can trust him. How would your friend feel being invited to that church? How would you feel being invited to that church? Can I tell you a secret? I would walk in with raised eyebrows and be very skeptical if I made it at all. I tell you that because you can be an ordained minister of the gospel and you will still struggle to comprehend the radically generous inclusion and love of the gospel. It always pushes me, even though I've given my whole life to this thing, it pushes me to become more loving, more inclusive, and there are times that I've missed the point because, quite frankly, the church I grew up in always prioritized 1 Timothy before the gospel of Jesus. And that church is not alone. There are lots of churches who say 1 Timothy should overrule the gospel of John. My friends, we must stop this. 1 Timothy is part of the Bible, yes, However, it is meant to keep authoritative figures of power in power, and we should hold it with caution. But when we go back to this story with Jesus going to the least likely preacher in Sychar and saying, I want you to tell the town about the good news of Jesus, it raises some questions about our humanity, doesn't it? Because I think about the humanity that I encounter and the people I encounter, and I will tell you there are times I am aware that I am very quick to judge others, that I am very quick to write other people off, that I say that I figure out somebody before I've really heard their story. And I tell you that because I'm not a perfect person, and neither are you. But while I'm imperfect, I have to tell you I have a real desire to become less judgmental. I want to be less judgmental. I know most of you here too, too. I also want to be more accepting of people whose stories are not the same as mine. I know all of you do too. And I fully believe and have found in my life that the gospel of Jesus Christ can help us with these things. To become less judgmental, to be more accepting of people, and when we follow Christ in the sidecar, we can find that the people that I would have written off very quickly are the people who Jesus goes to first and embraces them. Now, let's talk personally for a moment, shall we? Because we all live with some relationship with social media. Even if you're not on it, you still have some influence with it, whether you're in, you just hear about it or you log in and you accidentally see it, whatever it is. We all know the rules of social media, right? You post the things you want people to see. Now, I want you to imagine your whole life, and let's imagine you've never had a social media account, but you said, it's time. It's time for me to have a social media account. Look at your whole life. What is the first thing you would post about? Would it be a picture of you and your family? Would it be a picture of you at your job? Would it be a picture of you at Machu Picchu? Because that's really popular for some reason. (laughs) 
What is the first thing that you would post on social media about yourself? Sit with that for a moment. Appreciate the goodness of that moment. And then return to your life laid out before you and ask yourself a different question. What is the last thing that you would post about yourself on the internet? Because we all have it. We all have that one thing that we're like, wow, there is no way. If that ever got on the internet, that would be the worst thing about me. I would lose friends. People would abandon me. I would never want that posted on the internet. That thing right there, that's the first thing God speaks to you about when God talks. God goes right to that part and begins the conversation with you there. And you're like, no, no, God, I want you to look at the good stuff I've done. And God goes to the worst part, the part that's the worst about you, the part that you don't want anyone to know. And God goes right there and starts talking to you there. Much like how Jesus talked to Fotini and went right to her divorces, right to her life that she was told, society said, you should hide this. And Jesus says, there's nothing to be ashamed of here. I can tell you who you are. And even though I know who you are, I still love and care for you. So why does God start here with the last thing about us on the internet and make it the first thing? Why does this happen? The reason, my friends, is because the gospel tells us you are completely loved and accepted by God. Amen. And if God accepts you at your worst, then God will, of course, accept the rest. Amen. We worship a God who is much better than social media, my friends. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? And if you think about what that implies, it is the thing that you feel ashamed of that Jesus meets you at and says, you don't need to feel ashamed of that. You are my child. You can make things right. You can change things and make them better, but you don't have to hide. Jesus has this method of turning on all the lights so there's nowhere to hide. And once you realize there's nowhere to hide, it's like, oh, I guess it's just me. And Jesus says, yes, it's just you. And you are enough. And when we talk about being less judgmental and more accepting of others, we have to start with ourselves and be less judgmental of ourselves and more accepting of our imperfect humanity. Then we can start to look out and maybe become less judgmental and more accepting. My friends, may you become less judgmental and more accepting of yourself. May you become less judgmental and more accepting of others. And may you live with a posture in which your arms are open wide and your mind welcomes the beautiful diversity of the human experience. May you avoid the temptation to become a Bibleian and embrace the wonder of following Christ. Amen. And may you trust Fotini's testimony to the people of Sychar and embrace the presence of God in every aspect of your own life. Amen. Amen.